Um, this last week, as I was preparing for the sermon today, I read a book that offered several accounts of evangel evangelical preachers and famous evangelical preachers and pastors who um, have changed their mind about women in ministry. At first, when I found this book, I was a little skeptical because I, um, you know, my thinking is I've heard it all when it comes to arguments um, about women in ministry. And um, I didn't know what to expect. Part of me thought that the book was just about, um, you know, the journey that these men have had as they changed their mind and in allowing women to be in ministry. However, as I uh, read this book, uh, it dawned on me that this book contained powerful stories of courage, uh, of bravery that a lot of women have displayed throughout centuries in their uh, aim to answer to their call to ministry. One of these accounts was a very, very moving account of women Presbyterian preachers who decided to go and evangelize the Dakotas. Um, they went with, you know, through snow deep up to their waists, uh, through treacherous territories. Um, they had death threats, but they succeeded in their task in planting um, the first churches in the North Dakotas for. Um, Native Americans. Um, their legacy is still alive today thanks to what they did. Then there were other accounts, there were two that caught my attention, and one was of a well-known evangelical uh, pastor who said that his mother was one of the best teachers he had ever heard. He said that she was such a great teacher, in fact, that some of her classes topped the size of some small churches wherever he went, she, she thought. And uh, once uh, they were attending this mega church, and the pastor of this church asked her to take this dying women's uh, Sunday school class um, that nobody really cared about. She took it on, and she said, of course, I'm going to do this class. I'm going to teach it. Um, halfway through the class, the class multiplied. I mean, she had a full room um, of women attending this class, but the class was so good. She was such a great teacher, an effective teacher, that the wives started asking her, their husbands to come along with them. As soon as the senior pastor of this congregation got a hold of this information, he st she stopped the class. It didn't matter what size it was because he did not believe that a woman should teach men. Then there was, um, and this deeply affected this pastor, and eventually he ended up changing his mind because he saw the struggle, the great struggle that his mother went through as she was trying to become the teacher that God had called her to be. Um, then there was this pastor, well-known uh, pastor and preacher, Tony Campolo. He um, shared about his mother's struggle. He, he said that his mother was the best storyteller he had ever met and that his mother was such an effective storyteller, in fact, that ever since he was young, he was convinced that, he, that she was called to be a preacher. And... Um, they both knew, however, that at the church where they attended, that she could never be a preacher because women were not allowed to be preachers. That broke their hearts in some ways, uh, but she knew that that was the way it was, and they were faithful to that community. Uh, one time, she decided to share a story with her son. She said, son, when I was your age, I, um, I really, really wanted to just run away from home with, us, with this friend of mine at church. And our dream was to run away to visit this mission that's called Pillar of Fire. And 
Campolo was like, I don't understand why anybody would want to run away from home to visit some place called Pillar of Fire. But um, later on, his mother explained that the reason she was so adamant about wanting to do this is because they let women be preachers at Pillar of Fire. She was never able to run away from home, however, because she uh, was helping her widowed mom to care for her brothers and sisters. And um, he had to witness her never being able to answer to her calling and um, eventually change, her, change his mind about a women in ministry. At the end of this story, uh, he shared about uh, this woman, um, Anne Graham Lotz, who is the, uh, the, the daughter of the famous preacher and evangelist, Billy Graham. And uh, whenever he was sharing this story about Anne, uh, something just stirred within me and it just brought back this memory that I just wasn't able to shake it off from my mind and I had suppressed it so much because it was so painful. It was when Eric and I were 22 years old, we fresh out of college, we had planted a, a successful campus ministry, it had gone so well, we were so excited that somebody gave us the opportunity to plant this Hispanic church in Kansas City. We moved to Kansas City and we launched this Hispanic church. And you should have seen this 22-year-old Eric and Gio, the pride in our eyes as we are planting this congregation. I preached the sermon. He looked from the back, kind of like he's looking at me right now. It's really scary. Uh, he looked from the back with this look of pride and smiled at me so big. And I was like, this is the moment that I've been waiting for all my life. Um, and, uh, well, we, the service is over. We go to the back. We kind of, we have this eye thing that we know when, when we're proud of each other. And then he stands in front of me in the entrance of the church, and we're saying goodbye to people, and some people are a great job. And then this group of three guys come and turn their backs against me, and they say to him, that was a great sermon, Pastor. Thank you so much for allowing your wife to preach it. And Eric... You know, he is very calm, but I could see he was, something was boiling within him at that moment. He looked at me, and he saw me trying to hold my tears back, and he said, it's okay, you know, and I was like, I know, and then this guy kept on talking things that just didn't make any sense, like, you know, this is a great church, and we're so, we're so happy it's here, so close to us, and then Eric stopped him and said, you know what, I, I think this might not be the right church for you because she is a preacher in this church. And the only consolation I had is that Eric was twice their size. <laughs> and they were right there. <laughs> he didn't do anything, however. Uh, but it was such a hard moment. And it's similar to what happened to Anne Graham Lotz. And Tony Campolo describes her experience when she was trying to preach at this preacher's gathering, a Baptist preacher's gathering, when he says the ridiculous extremes to which the rejection of women preachers can go were evident at this gathering of Baptist leaders where Anne, the daughter of famous Billy Graham, was preaching. Anyone who has heard this woman will have to admit that she inherited her father's gift for evangelistic preaching. Incredibly, when she got up to speak, a good number of men in the audience turned their chairs around so that she had to preach to their backs. It was their way of showing their contempt for women preachers. With that, I want us to transition into our passage today that comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. So please follow along in your Bibles. 
it says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams, shall dream dreams. Even upon my servants, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and then, then they shall prophesy. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, I really wanted to address the problem of day drinking, but I don't think I'm going to get to that today. <laughs> it's funny that he has to say, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning and we're not drunk. Um, I'm not going to get into that one. But he does try to explain to the crowd what is taking place there at Pentecost because they, they just don't understand the euphoric moment that they just experience when the Spirit comes down on both their daughters and their sons, and they are empowered to begin a new era, to begin the era of the church, of the church of Jesus Christ. He says the Spirit is going to come down upon all of you, and that's what you just experience. And both of you will prophesy that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. You know, in most Christian settings, in our day and age, these pastors would be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. All of us can serve. That's awesome. But we need to move ourselves back in time. We need to realize what the culture was back, like back then. And so unlike our culture today, the culture back then, in a culture like the one back then, something like what Luke just said through this passage in Acts would have just been outrageous. And then to add to that, the Apostle Paul later on in Galatians 3.28, he goes and says this. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, these passages were read in context where Greek philosophers set the way things were and where uh, the Roman Empire set the cultural norms. Take it for example, I'm going to quote a couple of Greek philosophers so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. Socrates said that being a woman is a divine punishment since being a woman is to be halfway between a man and an animal. You're welcome, ladies. And then Xenophon, uh, a devout uh, Socrates a disciple, said that the ideal woman is the one that sees as little as possible, that hears as little as possible, and that asks as little as possible. I wouldn't have survived back then, guys. I asked so many questions. Then Demosthenes just tops like the top of our ice cream here, like our ice cream sundae here, is like the cherry on top, is the most in a set. And Aristotle contemporary he was, and he said that they ha the men have courtesans for our pleasures, prostitutes or female slaves for their daily use, and wives to bring up legitimate children and to be stewards of the household matters. 
Now lock up your, ch your children, everyone here. This was the culture that they had back then. And there was another important factor that we have to raise here is that women in these settings were not able to participate in communal life. Like uh, women in Greek culture were not allowed to go to the Agora, which was the place where uh, people had social interactions, where they went to have fun and when they, the marketplace of their society. And also in Jewish culture, uh, the Jewish culture where Pentecost occurred, women weren't even allowed in the synagogue, which is the equivalent of church today, or if they were allowed in there, they would be allowed to just sit in their own section. So it's astounding, it's astounding that Luke chooses to quote the prophet Joel in which he says that in the last days, women and men, daughters and sons would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to plant this new thing that's called the church of Jesus Christ. It's just outrageous. They hadn't heard something like that before. And he said that while women and men were present at the time of Pentecost. But Paul chooses not to stop there in his pursuit of teaching people what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated what he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, through his own actions. He started the church in Corinth in the house of, of Prisca and Aquila. And he praises them later on, saying that they were courageous and almost got killed for the gospel. Then he goes on to say that Aphibi was a deacon, a deacon in the church of, uh, I don't know, have a Sancre. And then he goes on, uh, then there was a witness um, in the, towards the end of Romans that said that there were 26 very well-respected church leaders in the time of Paul, and eight of those leader, leaders are women. But then a guy called Christosom, who was a church, a well-known and respected church father, is quoted saying great things about Phoebe and Prisca, saying that they were noble women worthy of their calling, and they were not hindered in any way by their sexes because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And Chrysostom goes the extra mile to say, uh, to mention a woman apostle in the scriptures, Junia. And he says that Junia was a faithful apostle who worked alongside Paul. And he praises as saying, oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she would even be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. Many modern day scholars now agree that the uh, resistance of women preachers uh, actually started after the era of the apostles. And that even some more radical things happened, such as changing the name of the Apostle Junia into Junias whenever the Bible was translated into Latin. So we are talking about the apostles right now, about the epistles. They wrote all of these books. But what about Jesus? Scholars also agree that Jesus was the one that actually set the norm for what the church would become through his own actions. Jesus set the example of including all sons and daughters of his time into his ministry. One of the first things that we know about Jesus is that he welcomed both men and women to participate in the work, to participate in the work of the kingdom. He allowed women to follow him on foot for miles at a time. 
And uh, that was actually unthinkable back there. It was unthinkable for a woman to say, I'm going to leave my household and I'm going to start following this rabbi. But Jesus allowed them to do that. Then there's, there's, there's that story about Mary and Martha in which he also breaks the norm of his time by letting Mary and Martha, by inviting them to sit at his feet and to listen to these stories and to relish in his teachings. And he actually criticized Martha for doing what was right in her time, which was to take care of household matters. He says, you are not doing it right. What you should be doing is sitting here with me, listening, listening to what I have to say. Then it's the woman of ill repute and the Samaritan woman. It was taboo for anybody to go and talk to somebody who was not a relative, especially if it was a woman, and if the woman was not there with her husband. But Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman and offers her hope and forgiveness. And he did the same thing for the woman who came and tried to pour perfume on his feet. Instead of embarrassing her, she treat, he treats her with such mercy and he actually embarrassed the house hosts for, um, for being mean towards and cruel towards her. And then we have the most surprising uh, inclusion of all, which is of Jesus appearing to, to women after the resurrection. It's important to know, guys, that back then women... Where not, the testimony of women was not admissible in courts or valid at all. And he chooses to appear to them, even though their testimony wouldn't be worth anything if somebody asked them about what they saw. So where does it leave, leave us today? Um, the question that Eric said is, is the Bible sexist? And I'm going to give you my answer. I can't give you a general answer. I'm going to give you my answer. What I would say is if the Bible is read contextually with a good historical background, if the Bible is read through the lens of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Bible is not. But I'm also going to say alongside with that that throughout my life I have encountered many people who do interpret the Bible in a sexist way. And they do so carelessly and without thinking about all the women and their children that they are affecting along the way. Now, I could literally stand here and share a hundred stories, painful stories of some of the things I have to witness in my own life of ministry but that wouldn't be edifying for any of us. That wouldn't help any of us uh, in any way. It would just be sad. I do want to share a funny one, though. Are you, are you okay with that? <laughs> one time when I was 14, for example, um, two friends of, of mine and I decided to serve through VBS, and we were happy, excited to do it. And uh, we decided to do this choreography for the kids, teach them how to dance to this song. We're so just psyched about it. That is until we found out that the group of elders had come complaining to the senior pastor, saying that our dance was going to tempt a lot of the young men volunteers in the youth group. It was sad. It was sad. Hard times. But um, I guess I could have agreed with that altogether had we not been dressed as monkeys 
from top to bottom. We were, and our, our costumes were not even our right size. They were saggy everywhere. I guess we have different standards in different churches of what sexy is, right, guys? So they stopped us from doing VBS because they said that we were too sexy. Um, yeah, I know, it's incredible. Um, but that's the kind of stories I could be sharing with you. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Um, and the painful ones, I wouldn't want to share that. And you know why? Because I'm not an angry person about it. I have never complained. Eric actually wants me to complain more sometimes. He says, you should share that with somebody. I'm like, why? And the reason why I don't and why I've never been angry is because my God is a faithful God, guys. God is faithful. God's love is abundant. When I read this Bible, I don't read it through the lens of the men who have suppressed women for ages. I read it through the lens of a God who calls me his daughter, who treats me like his precious daughter, and who has called me and whom I have faithfully served for years, decades. And I can tell you nobody has been able to stop that ministry in my life. Because God is faithful, guys. And that is the story that we have in this Bible. It's of God who loves you. A God who, through Jesus Christ, showed us a better way to do life. And that is by fulfilling that prophecy from the prophet Joel, in which he said in the last days, I will send my spirit so that your daughters and your sons shall prophesy that Jesus is here and that because of him, life will never be the same. So no, I'm not an angry person. I'm grateful because my God is able and true and faithful to his promises. That is the kind of congregation that we're called to be. We're called to be a congregation that when somebody comes from our church, uh, one of our sons or one of our daughters says, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a preacher. I'm called to be a missionary. We will rise and say, we're here to encourage you and love you just as Jesus did that for us. That is the kind of church that we're become, called to become. So I pray that next time that somebody comes from our congregation and wants to serve God faithfully, be a woman or a man, we will be like Christ's presence for them. We will empower them and support them and love them and teach them that the Bible shares a story of hope. <laughs>